As we get into some uh, teaching today, just to get you thinking, I wonder, uh, growing up, don't answer this out loud, but growing up, what did you want to be great at? Like, what did you figure by the time you were in, I don't know, third or fourth grade, what did you figure, or maybe all the way into high school, what did you figure was that thing that you were going to be great at? And uh, so you've got an answer. You know what it was. Second question, how old were you when you realized you're going to have to get a real job? Uh, you're, you're 57, you're like, I do? Uh, but that being great at that thing may not have been a, uh, actually a career decision, right? This was maybe just a, a dream or something, but you weren't going to be uh, the greatest at whatever of all time when you finally, maybe at some point, came to that realization. And I, if you haven't, I'm so, sorry to have burst the bubble and you should have warned you on that. Here's one more question. And I think uh, maybe we should raise our hand for this one. How many of you became great at the thing you wanted to be great at when you were a kid? Anybody? Just me. A couple? Okay, a couple of us. Great. Good. No, it's cool. No, it's good. That's awesome. Uh, how many of you are still great at that thing? Okay, great. Awesome. The thing is, even if you're, I would love to dig into that a little bit. Even if you're a person who makes a living at, out of the thing, out of being great at the thing that you wanted to be great at, from your own experience, you know this to be true, that you can be great at something and still not be great. One day Jesus is walking along and he hears his guys having a conversation behind him and he knows what it's about so he uh, confronts them and essentially they were talking about being great. They, were, they wanted to be great. And two of them in particular came to Jesus and said, Jesus, when you establish your kingdom, and by the way, they had a completely wrong idea about what that was going to look like. They said, we want you, we want to be like, we want to be insiders. Like, we want to be well-known. We want to have some influence. <clears throat> we want to be great leaders in your kingdom. <clears throat> we can judge them for that if we want to. We can criticize them for that. The disciples open themselves up to criticism all the time. But if we're honest, I think we want to be great, maybe in the same way they wanted to be great, because it's just a human thing. People want to be great at something. People want to be known and recognized. And here's the thing. Like, even people who don't want the attention, like they don't want to be the out front kind of person, they actually want to be known for that, for not wanting to be known, like for being the person that doesn't want to be, be known. And so Jesus says, that's great. Like, it's okay. It's like, to be great, it's great to want to be great. The good news is he didn't say, you shouldn't want that. That's not a good aspiration. You shouldn't want to be great. He's like, that's fine. It's great to want to be great. But let me define for you what real greatness is. And like he always does, he turns the whole thing inside out and upside down. And he says, being great isn't about being great at something. Being great, like being a great person, is about taking the thing that you're great at and leveraging it for the benefit of someone else. Being great isn't out about being like way out ahead of anybody and everybody else. Being great is about taking whatever you're great at and coming alongside someone else and leveraging what you're great at for their benefit. Being great is about other people. So let me just read you Jesus' words and then we're going to go to a different passage in just a minute. In Mark chapter 10, this is how Jesus said it. He said, whoever wants to become great among you, so it's a good thing. He's not judging that or condemning that. He says, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. 
And then he repeats it for emphasis. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Probably a downer for these guys. And maybe it's a downer for you to hear that. But you know what? We know that's true. Like, we know that the people that we think are great, if I were to ask you, what, what do you think is the quality that makes them a great human? You wouldn't tell me, like, somebody who's just, you would tell me about someone who's just great at something. If you define someone as a great person, a great man, a great woman, whatever, it's because there's something deeper than what they're great at. There's something richer than that. Like, we consider people great when they do exactly what Jesus is talking about here, when they take their great skills and their great talent and their gifts or whatever it is, and they use all of that or leverage those things to benefit someone else. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of that. So the bottom line for today's message is this, that greatness, because of the way Jesus defined it, greatness is always a decision. Greatness is a choice. People who are great are great because they choose to be great. Like, it's not something you're born with. It's not something you're born into. It's not dependent on a skill set or a talent or education, even though you use those things and leverage those things. Greatness is a decision and a series of decisions you make when you realize you have an opportunity. You have opportunities to come alongside somebody else and leverage whatever it is you're great at for their benefit. So the problem and the challenge with this is this, that I think probably every single day of our lives, we have opportunities to be great the way that Jesus says we can be great, and we miss them. And the reason we miss them is not because we don't see them. We miss them because we talk ourselves out of them. We see an opportunity to be great, as Jesus defines great, but because, I don't know, we're so smart, we're so clever, whatever, left on our own, we can always figure out a way to leverage our gifts and talents and time for our benefit and to the exclusion of other people. We're great at that. There are a lot of things working against us when it comes to this, and consequently, every single day, we have the opportunity to choose to be great, and every one of us has an opportunity to choose to be great, but because of our, I don't know, intelligence, because of our wealth, because of our comfort, because of our stuff, because of our work, because of all of our responsibilities, we miss opportunities to be great as Jesus defined greatness. And in the meantime, we spend a lot of our time and a lot of our effort, and a lot of our energy, and any margin that we have trying to be great at things, thinking that somehow by being great at something, even good things, even legitimate things, by being great at something, that somehow we're great people. But we know better. You know better. I know better. But because we're so good at talking ourselves out of it, we miss the opportunities to choose to be great. So today's story is a fascinating story from the New Testament. So if you brought your Bible... Um, and want to follow along, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, Luke 10. This is perhaps the most famous story in the New Testament, perhaps the west, most well-known parable of all of Jesus' parables. It's one of these stories that has actually given us terminology that all of us use on a regular basis. And the reason we have a title for this story, like here's a little background for you. When the Bible was written, uh, after the Bible was written, the people came along and put in chapter numbers and verses, 
Did you know that Jesus didn't teach this way? He didn't say things like, well, in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, it says this, or follow, open up your Bible and follow along with me. Let's start at verse 1. He didn't teach that way, all right? That came later. Pros and cons to that. But along with that, later still, someone came along and put headings in there so it kind of breaks up all the text. And you can have some kind of idea about what the topic is or the subject matter. So the heading that got put at the top of this story is this, the Good Samaritan. Jesus didn't give this story. He's like, and now, today's story, the Good Samaritan. He didn't give it a title. He didn't have a title screen in the Bible app event, all right? Somebody else put that in there, and it stuck. But as we're going to see today, the Good Samaritan wasn't really good. Probably not the best title for this chapter, for this man-made division in the text. And I'm going to try to explain why it's not the best title, and maybe you'll agree with me that there's a better title, and it's a fascinating passage because Jesus uses this story to illustrate true greatness. There's something here for everybody this morning, regardless of how familiar you are with this story. In the context of this story, the context is what really makes this interesting, uh, for me anyway, even if you have heard the story, you know, of the Good Samaritan, and you, you, may not, you may not know why Jesus told the story, and that makes it really, really engaging and applicable to every one of us. So here's the context. Jesus is going from place to place, and everywhere he goes now he's teaching. And there's a group of people that are always trying to trap Jesus in his own words to discredit him, to discredit him in front of his audience, right? The people who are following him, or starting to listen to him, and actually following him everywhere he goes. Like he's really gathering a following now, and it's starting to make the establishment, the established religious leaders, starting to make them nervous. Why? Because if all these people start to follow this guy, Jesus, this no-name rabbi from Nazareth, if they start to follow him, then they're going to start to lose their power and their influence over people. So they're in the crowd too now, and they're just waiting for him to say something foolish, and everybody will go, oh, well, he can't be the Messiah. Listen to what he said. You know, that's crazy. That's irresponsible. He can't be from God. So they hire a very, very smart lawyer, an expert in the law, and they say to him, we want you to follow Jesus around. We want you to take copious notes, and then after you've heard him teach publicly, we want you to find something that he's teaching And we want you to approach him publicly, and we want you to make sure there's a crowd around and trap him by his own words to discredit him in front of the people. So that's what's going on. And within this incredible context, Jesus uses this as an example to do a lesson on what true greatness is all about. So let's read some verses here in Luke chapter 10. I'm going to begin with verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now, the whole reason he starts the conversation is to test or to trick Jesus. He starts his conversation with, uh, with, with some of Jesus' own words. That's where he wants to go. He wants to trap him with his own words. Teacher, he asks. He raises his hand like he just, just happened to be in the crowd that day. And the guys in the, who hired him are probably in the peripheral like, this could be our day. This could be it. Let's watch this. You got your camera out? Watch this. What do I do to inherit eternal life? here's something we all know about a good attorney, especially a good like trial lawyer. Um, And I I know this because I've watched like a lot of episodes of Matlock. So you know as well, I know things. I've done my research. A good trial lawyer never asks a question he doesn't already know, right? He doesn't already know the answer to. So this guy, he knows the answer to his question because here's why. He's known the answer to this question since he was a little kid. 
a good Jewish boy going to synagogue, going to temple, going through all of his religious training. Every Jewish person basically knows the formula for having or gaining eternal life. And by that, they meant life with God or getting in good with God or getting God to love you and to earn God's favor. They defined eternal life all kinds of different ways. But now he's asking Jesus... What do you say is the answer to this question? I mean, I have my answer, but what do you say? So Jesus turns it back on him, verse 26. He answers the question with a question. What is written in the law? In other words, you're an expert in the law. So the answer to this question apparently is found in the law, at least you would think so. So how do you read it? Verse 27. This This gets really interesting. This very crafty lawyer decides to say back to Jesus some words that he's heard Jesus say on previous occasions because when Jesus was asked, you're like, what do you think a person has to do to please God or to get into God's good graces? Now he turns back to Jesus, the very thing that he's heard Jesus say. And what he says is uh, back to Jesus is a combination of a verse from Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy 6, and then it's attached to a verse in Leviticus. The verse from Deuteronomy is the standard Jewish first century answer to this question. But Jesus, when he answered the question earlier, he attached the second part. And this very smart lawyer now gives Jesus his words back because he's hoping to leverage Jesus' own teaching against him. So here's what he says, verse 27. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. That's the part they always uh, recited. And then Jesus had said, added this, and love your neighbor as yourself. He's repeating Jesus' own words back to him. And all the Jewish people are like, yep, that's the answer. You got it. And maybe he kind of winks at Jesus, you know. So he says the standard part, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then he kind of winks at Jesus. Oh, and your neighbor as yourself. He's throwing it back into, the kind of throwing the ball back into Jesus' court. So now Jesus is going to have to own and embrace his own words. And the lawyer is setting him up for the trick question that will discredit him in front of everybody. Verse 28. And Jesus says, bingo! No, he didn't say that. He's like, ding, 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 ding. You have answered correctly. And the crowd applauds. And then he does this. Do this, and you will live. You do these two things. You do them in tandem with one another. And you're cool with God. Like, everything is great. And I think maybe Jesus turned to leave. Verse 29, but he, the lawyer, wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, well, well, then who is my neighbor? In other words, that's way too open-ended here, Jesus, to say that I get in good with God or get eternal life or life that lasts forever, however you define it, if the way to get that is by loving God perfectly and by treating my neighbor the way I want to be treated, like love my neighbor as myself, that's a little bit open-ended. So now the lawyer's feeling, he's feeling like maybe he's on trial here, right? So to continue his attempt to trap Jesus, he says, well, who is my neighbor then? If we're going to keep asking, answering questions with more questions, who is my neighbor? Answer me that. So here's the trap. And we're kind of reading maybe between the lines, but we know the context. And so perhaps the trap was to get Jesus to so broadly define neighbor that he would discredit himself with the people. Again, little background. The Greek word that's translated neighbor simply means one who is close or one who is near. So it's a little too open for interpretation for this guy. Like, does it mean my neighbor next door? Does it mean my family? Does it mean everybody who lives in my neighborhood, in my town, in my country? Is this a national thing? Like, what does it mean, one who is near? Near to what? So he's like, okay, Jesus, you're not going to get by with that. You've got to define neighbor. So instead of answering the question directly, Jesus answers the question um, 
with this story that has become so well known because this was Jesus' way. Verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And they're like, oh, no, he's going to tell us another story, right? Like, why can't he just answer the question for once, right? Every time we get him pinned down, we think we got him, and he starts with once upon a time. You know, why does he do that? Like, why doesn't he just answer the question? But I got to think there was a, probably another group of people there in the crowd, and they're, they're, they hear the story start, and they're texting their friends, like, you got to get down here, like, right now. Jesus is going to tell another one of his stories. Like, these made-up stories with the point, they're so awesome, you got to get down here. Let's see. I think they made a game of it. I would have. Let's see if we can get the point before his disciples do, because they never know what he's talking about. <laughs> they are not the sharpest tools in the shed. So let's see if we can beat them to the point and figure it out. Get down here. Jesus is answering the question, who is my neighbor? Like exactly who are you supposed to love the way you love yourself in order to please God? That's the big question. So in reply, Jesus said, a man is going down, was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about 17 miles. That's about the distance from our driveway to the town pier in Bar Harbor, okay? Add in there a drop in elevation of about 3,000 feet. And that uh, 3,000 foot drop over 17 miles, and it just gets hotter and hotter and dustier and rockier, and it's a very treacherous route. Keep reading verse 30. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So we get the picture, right? The man's all by himself. These robbers take everything he has, including his clothes. They leave him in the dust and the rocks, bleeding to death, knowing that when the sun goes down, if he survives into the evening, he'll probably be eaten by wild animals. So the man is left not just for dead. He's left for dead to face a torturous night alone, in part because nobody traveled these roads at night. Verse 31, this is where it starts to sound, I think it starts to sound like he's telling a joke. And a priest, top of the food chain in that world, a priest and a Levite and a Samaritan walk into, anyway, a priest happened to be going down the same road. So he's happened to be going down the same road, so probably going from Jerusalem, probably from the temple, from his duties there, and Jesus doesn't give any details because this is a fictitious story. Uh, it never happened. He's making it up maybe off the top of his head. So here comes the priest. If he's coming from Jerusalem, it's safe to assume that he's left temple, he's ceremonially clean, so he's not supposed to touch like anything dead, not supposed to touch the blood of unclean things and all that. A priest happened to be going down the same road. This is important. When he, what's the next word? Saw. When he saw the man, and he passed by on the other side. Here's what we don't know, and here's what we can read into the story. And we can imagine, because this is Jesus' point. Here comes a man, a priest, a holy man, a man close to God. He sees a man dying, or for all he knows, dead on the side of the road. And he goes to the other side of the road. And once he saw him, he, in his mind, figured out a reason why he shouldn't stop to help. We don't know what the reason is. But he saw a man dying on the side of the road, and since he didn't stop, somehow in his mind, we know that he justified, there's no reason for me to stop, and he walked on by. And we don't know what the reason was. Maybe it's because he was afraid the robbers maybe were still there waiting for someone to stop and help. They just like ambushed the next person. We don't know what he's thinking, but here's what we know. He saw the man, and in his mind figured out a reason why it was best for him not to get involved. I think we do that all the time. We can identify with this, verse 32. Two very important words. So too. So too, as in like the same way, along the same road, same thing. 
so too a Levite. Now, the Levites weren't quite priests, but the Levites were very educated people. They were respected by the people. They tended to be wealthier than the common person. And the thing about the Levites is like, they were born into this elite group of people simply because they came from the tribe of Levi, like from way back in ancient times in the early days of the nation of Israel. So again, a prestigious person. When Jesus said Levite, everybody knew who a Levite was. So too a Levite, when he came to the place, and what's the word? And saw him passed by on the other side. Again, we don't know what he was thinking. Maybe he was thinking the same thing as the priest. Maybe he's afraid because he's obviously a wealthy person and everybody could see that just by the clothes he was wearing. That, in the, that Maybe the bandits were waiting in the bushes and would clearly see that he was a man of means. So maybe he's thinking, these robbers are probably still out here. They're, they're, I, can't, I, they, I can't risk it. I don't know what's going through his mind, but here's what we know. He saw the man... And upon seeing the man in his mind, he came up with a reason why he shouldn't stop and get involved. Verse 33. But, not so too, okay? Not in the same way. This is a different story. The story takes a turn here. But a Samaritan, and the people in the audience are like, what's a Samaritan doing here? See, the Samaritans lived in, you want to guess where they lived? Samaria. Samaria, you are sharp. Samaria was sort of right in the middle of that area, right in the middle of Palestine. And the Samaritans were part Jewish and part Babylonian or Persian. They were part of a lot of other things too. It's a long story. They'd settled in this region years and years and years ago. And they were not allowed to participate in temple worship. The Jews didn't consider them Jewish enough. They worshiped in a different way. They were outcast. And oftentimes, in the New Testament times, when a person was traveling like south to north or north to south in Palestine, instead of going directly through Samaria, they would spend an extra day of travel to go around the area of Samaria so as not have to deal with and interact with Samaritans. These were not acceptable people for whatever religious and cultural reasons. So now Jesus, in his characteristic storytelling way, introduces a Samaritan. And they're like, this is going to get good now. And he's making this a very extreme story because that's what he did with his parables. Verse 33. A Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he, what? Saw him. The thing that all three of these guys have in common is they all saw the very same thing. But they have a couple very different reactions. The Samaritan, when he saw him, he took pity on him. In other words, instead of going through a bunch of mental gymnastics, instead of like, well, here's why I shouldn't stop and it's dangerous and it's too risky and besides, I mean, if anybody had a reason not to, you know, he, I'm a Samaritan, right? So I don't need a... He could have gone there. He could have gone there because by implication, this is not a Samaritan lying here in the ditch. This is a Jewish person lying there left for dead. He has every reason not to stop, but for some reason he saw the same thing that the priest and the Levite saw and he had a completely different reaction. And we don't know because Jesus doesn't tell us, but I wonder if the Samaritan reacted the way he did because he knew what it was like to be overlooked, to be marginalized, to be judged, to be left on the side of the road culturally and spiritually because his entire people group had, figuratively speaking, been left to lie on the side of the road. He knew what it was like to be neglected and to be ignored and to be shunned. Like, so we don't know what's going through his mind in this fictitious story, but he saw the same thing and he responded in a completely different fashion and you know the rest of the story. Here it is. Verse 34. He went to him, dangerous thing to do, not knowing what was lurking in the bushes. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. That's an expensive thing to do, by the way. 
He put the man on his own donkey. That's a physically difficult thing to do. Brought him to an inn and took care of him. He spent the night there taking care of this total stranger. Jesus has created this very extreme act of or extreme set of circumstances. Priest, Levite did nothing. Samaritan did more than the average person would ever do. Verse 35. The next day he took out two denarii, and the people in Jesus' audience are like, oh, two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper. a lot of money. Gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll re reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And of course, the whole time Jesus is speaking, the whole audience is thinking, when's he going to get back to the neighbor part? I mean, where's this going? Cool story, but what, like, we had a point, I thought. And he turns to the expert in the law, and he asks him this question, verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? So like, not like let me rephrase the question for you. Which one of these guys acted neighborly? Which one of these guys loved this man the way they would, that they would want to be loved? Which one of these people did for someone else what he would want done for him if he were in those circumstances? Like, which one of the three was a neighbor? Which one of the three acted out, chose to live out the second part of what it means to please God? And the expert in the law probably waited as long as he could and finally said, oh, you want to have mercy on him? Excuse me, didn't hear you there. The, the one who had mercy on him. I, I'm not sure I, I heard you. What did you say? The one who had mercy on him, okay? Like, and Jesus is like, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Like, just go. When you see someone who has a need that you can help meet, help meet it. Just go when you see someone in need because you're great at whatever, because you have this skill set, because you have access to some resources, whatever the thing is, take some of that and leverage it for the people who have the need. The moral of the story is when you see a need you can meet, meet it. The moral of the story is you can choose to be great. The great priest and the great Levite chose not to be great even though people kind of saw them as great. And the Samaritan, who's probably great at nothing, definitely not known for being great, he was great that day because he chose to be great. And the challenge for you and the challenge for me is every day of our lives, in our family, where we work, where we go to school, where we live, in our church, in our interactions with people, just about every day of our lives, there's an opportunity to be great the way the Samaritan was great. But like the priest and the Levite, we tend to be experts at looking at a situation. And as we're passing by, figure out in our minds, figure out a way, convince ourselves not to stop, not to get involved. And we know the excuses. We got lot, there are as many excuses in this room as there are people, probably more, right? But at some point, we've got to decide if we're going to do the thing that pleases God because God's like, hey, you want to please me? Love me and love people. It's really simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. Let me go over that again. Just a couple points here for you. Love me, love people. Love the people around you, the people you are close to, the people you're connected to, the people you come into contact with on your ordinary days. At some point, we've got to decide that we're going to not let things like our own busyness keep us from being great. We're not going to let things like our great responsibilities keep us from being great. 
We're not going to let our image, our reputation keep us from being great. We're not going to allow the inconvenience and the uncomfortability to keep us from being great. Like sometimes the very things that keep us from being great, as Jesus defined greatness, are the very things that God has given us. Like, and if we, we made a choice to use and to leverage those things properly, it would allow us to be even greater people. Not for the sake of being great, not for the sake of being noticed, but for the sake of being great in a way that reflects the way of Jesus and pleases and honors and best represents our Heavenly Father. So listen, while others might be standing around scratching their heads going, well, I don't know, I don't, I don't know, who is my neighbor? I don't know. Like, they might be involved in some stuff that I wouldn't approve of, right? Like they might, I don't know, they might be in this country illegally or they might be part of the LGBTQ community. They might be Democrats. <laughs> they might be Republicans. While others, even people who are followers of Jesus, while they're standing around trying to figure it out, trying to figure out what the criteria is for the people I'm going to serve, trying to figure out who is worthy or deserving or whatever, be a good neighbor. Jesus said, go and do likewise. While everybody else is scratching their heads trying to figure out what to do or if they should do anything, just go ahead and do it. Be a loving neighbor like Jesus taught us to and don't worry about the expectations or the opinions or the judgment of anybody else. While others are standing around like, yeah, but if I do this, what difference does it really make? Anyway, it's not really solving a problem. I'm probably doing more, I'm probably doing more harm than good. That's one we really like to lean into. Oh, sure, I'll help. Can I get a tax deduction for that? My goodness, just... I guess, but just get some cash, get some gift cards, put it in an envelope, slide it in their locker, slide it in their desk, stick it under the wiper on their car, whatever. If you really, oh, and if you really want to up the ante, don't put your name on it. Don't sign it. Don't help them track it back to you in any way. Oh, and then after you do that, next week, do it again. When you see a need and you're in a position to meet the need, just meet the need. I think that puts a smile on God's face and it's a choice that we get to make. Are we going to act out of generosity based on what we see? Are we going to, or are we going to see the need and then try to figure out a reason why we shouldn't have to be the one to help? Why we shouldn't like give? Why we shouldn't go out of our way to serve? Why we shouldn't do what we have the tools and the resources and the ability and the freedom to do? Because that is true greatness. That's the kind of greatness that makes God smile. It's the kind of greatness that Jesus calls us to. Greatness that says, I see a need. I, can, I can't meet all the needs. I can't even meet all of this one person's needs. But I see a need in this moment that I can meet. So I'm going to leverage whatever it is that I have, whatever time, whatever influence, whatever money, whatever connections, whatever energy, whatever creativity, whatever I'm great at, for his benefit, for her benefit, for their benefit. That is true greatness. We have these opportunities every single day, and maybe they don't make for dramatic stories, but I would say every single day, and for sure every single week, we walk by people, we bump up against people, we work with people, are in relationships with people, have extended family members, and needs present themselves, and we could do something. And we know in that moment what needs to be done, and we often choose not to do it because we talk ourselves out of it And Jesus is showing us that when we do that, we miss an opportunity. 
not to be great at. We miss an opportunity to be truly great in the eyes of our Heavenly Father in the way of Jesus and His kingdom. So I told you at the beginning, I think they, whoever they is, I think they mistitled this passage, this parable. I think we can make the case that this isn't the story of the good Samaritan, that it's the story of the great Samaritan. It's a story of a guy who saw a need and met it. It's a story of a guy who understood the greatness of what, that greatness in the kingdom of God is a choice. That greatness is a choice and it always, it's always a choice we get to make. So anyway, as I wrap up, I want to uh, bring us to a, a call to action because that's just my way. Here's a call to action. Here's a call to action. First of all, I'm not expecting you to remember anything else I've said today. Uh, you don't have to recite back any major points. There, I didn't really give you anything. You, you don't have to remember anything else I said in this message, but I just want us to remember this one thing today as we wrap up these thoughts and transition into some music. I want to give you what I think is the question that great people ask when they see someone on the side of the road. Here's a question that we have the opportunity to ask probably over and over during our ordinary days and our ordinary weeks. And sometimes the question is asked out loud to someone, but in most cases, it's a question that we simply ask in our minds. And here's why it's an important question. I think this question has the power to kind of move us beyond our apathy, to move us beyond passivity, to move us beyond the mental gymnastics we go through to talk ourselves out of getting involved in serving greater kingdom purposes and really being great in the eyes of our Heavenly Father. Here's the question. You ready for this? It's going to blow your mind. Here it is. What can I do to help? What can I do to help? Not, how can I solve all their problems? That's too big. Not, how can I fix this? That, that's not it either. When we ask this question, we often, if the question's too big, we often talk ourselves out of it. This is a better question. What can I do to help? Sometimes you sit the person down and you say, you, you know what? I see you. I see what you've got going on. I can tell it's a lot it's got to be overwhelming. I can't imagine. What can I do to help? And if we'll begin asking that question in our families, in our households, in our workplace, in our neighborhood, with your friends, this simple question may bridge the gap from where you might have gone to where you need to be. That simple question may be the question that enables you and empowers you to be great in someone's life, to be great in the way that Jesus called us to be great in his kingdom. You and I this week, maybe today, will have opportunities to choose to be great. The question is, will we? Will we be great or will we refuse? Will we miss the moment? When we choose greatness, as Jesus defined greatness, our Heavenly Father is honored and glorified. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, all of us can think of people have been great for us, who've been great in this way on our behalf. We all have people like that in our lives who've leveraged what they're great at, who've leveraged their resources, they've leveraged their experience and their wisdom, and they've leveraged what they had on our behalf, maybe to save us some heartache, to save us some disappointment, to save us some long-term scars, Maybe in some cases to literally save our lives. Some of us in this room or watching online are where we are because of those people in our lives and we want to be that for someone else. 
Father, thank you that this whole conversation, this whole story in Luke chapter 10, this whole interaction, all of it takes place in the context of an absolutely perfect example of greatness, that you, our Heavenly Father, sent your Son to leverage his perfection for us on our behalf. So now we don't want to miss another opportunity. Thank you for the opportunities that will come this week. May those opportunities stop us in our tracks. May we see the people in those opportunities as people worthy of our time, worthy of our energy, worthy of our discomfort, worthy of our resources because they are people made in your image who perhaps desperately need to experience you in their lives. Give us the courage to ask, what can I do to help? Give us the courage to engage. And in all of this, may you reflect who you are to the people around us that we may bring honor and glory to you the only truly great God. We pray all this in Jesus' name.